in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> Two of our scripture readings this morning include last words. In John 17, we find Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper just prior to his arrest, trial, and execution. Our passage from the Revelation, of course, records the final words of the Bible. When we think about last words, what comes to mind? A weekend ago, I attended events for two commencements where many final words of congratulation were expressed. Commencement speakers are expected to impart words of inspiration and wisdom that graduates will carry with them as they make their way in the world. And it's surprising how many relate the same themes even platitudes, mostly about believing in yourself and following your dreams. When we think of last words, we also think of words of tribute, words of thanks, words of guidance, perhaps exhortation. We find many such moments in scripture. We, of course, also think of someone's final words before they die. Many of these are memorable and we cherish them, certainly when they are uttered by our loved ones or people whom we admire. Some famous deathbed words are memorably funny, however. Here's one of my favorites. When he was on his deathbed, the multimillionaire philanthropist Richard B. Mellon had just two words for his brother, Andrew. They had had a little game going on for about seven decades. And just before he breathed his last, Richard called his brother over, gently touched his arm and whispered, Andrew remained it for four years until he died. Mother Teresa's final words were few, but encompassed her entire life vision. She said simply, I love you, Jesus. I love you. When we think of last words in whatever context, we usually expect them to be important to express what the person especially wanted their hearers to regard as vital. This is certainly the case when we consider our two last words passages this morning. Looking at our gospel passage then from John 17, often called Jesus's high priestly prayer, we know that Jesus has a great deal more to say at his trial and from the cross and of course, his extensive teaching over the 40 days following his resurrection. But here, as he concludes that last meal with his disciples before his passion, we may assume that he is particularly eager to impress upon them what he wants them to regard as most significant. As was so often the case, we find Jesus at this point not teaching, but praying. He is speaking to his father, not of what he is about to endure, but about what is key to their and to our endurance. Going back to what Jesus says right before he prays, he concludes his teaching with words of encouragement, promising his followers peace and urging them to take courage, to remain confident that he has overcome the world. As he then turns to the father, he continues to utter words of affirmation for his followers that they had been given to him by his father, that he has manifested his glory to them, that he is sending them into the world even as he had been sent into the world, asking that they would know the fullness of his joy and be sanctified in the truth. 
that is one still in the world, though not of the world, that they would be kept from the evil. As he closes his prayer in the words of our passage this morning, Jesus then raises his sights beyond those who were with him in these moments, praying now for all who believe in me through their words. Jesus is praying for us. And what does he pray for them and for us? The first thing we pray every week in our prayers as a people, that we all may be one. What Jesus considered of supreme importance as he looked beyond his own earthly ministry and that of his disciples down through the years and centuries to come is that we would be unified. Completely one, he prays finally in verse 23, or as some translate it, perfected in unity. We notice a few things about the nature and quality of this unity that Jesus prays we would have. First, it is not modeled on or rooted in affinity, but the Trinity. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Our union with the triune God is what unifies us. It's a theme Jesus has repeated throughout the entire Last Supper discourse. Earlier in John 14, Jesus likewise affirms that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And then when he declares that the Spirit, our helper, comes to us, he also will be in us. So Jesus concludes, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Paul summarizes this same new reality in 1 Corinthians when he writes, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Our union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is what makes possible, indeed what creates, our communion with one another and impels our own ambition to remain unified. So Jesus asked the Father that they may be one as we are one. Second, our unity then is expressive of our identity in Christ. It's not an alliance that we choose to make and maintain with each other. Which, we, which would be more like a volunteer association. It is who we are and where we have been placed in relation to God, to each other, and as we shall see, to the world. As Jesus affirms earlier in his prayer, I have manifested your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And then again, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. The implications of this are clear. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to one another. Neither that identity nor the unity it establishes and calls upon us to nurture is optional. And so it's not possible for a Christian to fulfill their calling under his name without those who share that name. I cannot, as an individual follower of Jesus, fulfill the image of the one who named me 
and placed me in his body. Ours is a corporate image and identity. Who I am is constituted by who we are. At the same time, we see also from this shared identity that diversity is baked into our unity. The wonder of Christian unity is that people from every race, ethnicity, gender, age, cultural background, social status, every tribe and tongue share the same spirit. And not only are we diverse in those terms, that same spirit has given us diverse gifts, has made us different parts of the body of Christ, such that we can only be whole, only be fully who we are together. And for this reason, accepting our diversity, indeed embracing it, only together, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians, can we grow to maturity in Christ. I have said this before from this pulpit, and I say it again. I need you, and you need me. Who we are and who we are to become in Christ depends upon our oneness. You know what the greatest threat to unity is? It's not individuality. We celebrate this. It's autonomy. It's making our participation in the body of Christ optional, a matter of our own preferences or sensibilities or emotions, as if our union with one another in Christ were up to us. So if you offend me or hurt me, or I disagree with your understanding of Christian doctrine or whatever, then I'm gone. I don't need this. I'm not talking about divergence over our foundational commitments. Recall that Jesus prays earlier, sanctify them in thy truth, your word is true. But when we wrestle to understand scripture together and confront disagreements, this is an opportunity to preserve unity by recalling where we do fundamentally agree. I realize that in our culture, we feel repelled by any threat to our, our autonomy. And yet talk of community is heard everywhere. And I'm glad it is. The alternative is abhorrent. The alternative is, well, what we face in America and in the world today. But Christian community finds its center in Jesus Christ and stands against any assertion of my own autonomy. It's not my first birth and everything that goes with it, as much as we may celebrate that, but my second birth that unites me with you and any who name Christ their Lord and Savior. The great irony and the great wonder of this is that we rediscover the true nature of freedom. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, Paul declares to the Galatians. And among its many expressions, to be in union with Christ and with my brothers and sisters in Christ releases me from a self-will that so often ends in destructiveness, that will inevitably tear down rather than build up. And in the face of our present situation of divisions, of vitriol and anger and violence, we have a unique opportunity to show people a 
different way, which begins with us. This leads me to my third and final observation about the oneness that Jesus prays for us. So our unity is rooted in the Trinity. It is expressive of our very identity and expressed by diversity in unity. And third, this unity is not for us alone, but for the world. A world, Jesus reminds us, that does not know the Father. Now, in drawing this distinction between knowing the Father and not knowing the Father in the world, people sometimes think that Jesus' point is to be exclusive. But in fact, it's the opposite. It is the world that does not know the Father for whom he is concerned. And integral to the prospect of the world coming to that knowledge of the Father <clears throat> is the unity of his followers, then and now. When we are distinct in this way, then the Father is on display. So Jesus in verse 21, in praying to the Father for our oneness, adds, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Or again in verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me. That they may believe. That they may know. The integrity of our witness to Christ depends upon preserving our unity in Christ. Unity, oneness, and devotion to one another is the chief apologetic for our testimony that Jesus Christ is from God and that we stand in union with him as his image bearers. When our unity disintegrates, our witness falls apart and the world has every right to reach that conclusion. Let's look at the damage to our witness that we have seen just this week because of what some of our fellow believers have done. Who rather than nurturing and protecting other members of the body violated and abused them while leaders then covered it up. Tragically, when these things happen, when we are divided, when we tear each other, when we bite and devour one another, as Paul describes in Galatians, the world is deprived of glory. What do I mean? Notice how Jesus speaks in such terms. The glory that you have given me, he tells the Father, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. This harkens all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, where we read the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the world sees us full of grace and truth, they see the glory of Jesus. And so we come to that great and radical inauguration of a new way. At the beginning of these, his final words before his passion in John 13, Jesus laid it out plainly. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my 
disciples if you love one another. The world knows that we belong to him and that he is their redeemer when we fulfill our belonging to each other. This was the case from the very beginnings of the church. Here's what Tertullian famously wrote in his apology in the second century. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, how they are ready even to die for one another. The very qualities that people in his society at times mocked and branded as weakness, in reality, displayed their strength. And that same radical love, the love Jesus here declares to the Father, with which you have loved me, and I pray may be in them, promises to prove just as powerful in our own age and society. I'm so grateful to be in a church where such love is made manifest. We, of course, are far from complete in our oneness and the fuller expressions of love, but it's real here. And others have seen it. When John Hare's sons were here for Terry's funeral, John told me that the one thing that impressed them the most was how much we loved their mom and dad. In fact, when they talked with John about where he might settle down in the future, they told him to stay here where he was surrounded by such a loving community. Neither of his sons considers himself a believing Christian, but the love they saw here did show them Christ. Of course, love that nurtures and secures our unity in Christ is costly. It was costly for Jesus, and it comes with a price for us. That price, again, though, is our own self-will, our own self-gratification. But the return is glory, a glory we share with Christ. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. Jesus tells the Father, and the glory that we share with the world, that we show to the world when we love one another, when we embody what Jesus embodied, full of grace and truth. Last week, John Pitter so eloquently spoke of what awakes us from the vision of John and the Revelation. And how the glory of the kingdom that is to come challenges us to consider what we may do now that contributes to that glory. Of the many things that may make such a contribution, I believe that our love will be foremost. We practice heaven today when we love one another and love our neighbors with the love of Christ. Looking at these last words of scripture, in the Revelation, then, we find that like this passage in John 17, the entire Bible also ends with a prayer. John first hears Jesus announce, I am coming soon. This issues in an invitation. Let everyone who is thirsty come. And then we hear that final supplication, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. And we, the bride of Christ, his people, his body, <clears throat> together with our brothers and sisters around the world and through the angels, stand waiting.
but not idle. We bear witness by our oneness and love, still fulfilling the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father for us 2,000 years ago. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen.